0: guys upstairs. Have a great morning. Dan, is it okay if I ask you just to not turn those on, uh, spotlights on? They just... They heat me up so fast, I feel like a rotisserie chicken being cooked under the lights. (laughs) And halfway through, I'm sweating so much and I'm like, can people tell that I'm sweating? And I'm like, just trying not to move and keep my heart rate down. Thank you, I appreciate that. (laughs) Okay, so I'm back. It was only two weeks away, but it was three Sundays, so it felt like a long time away and it's great to be back. I miss Nelson, I miss this church. We had a chance to go down to one of the larger churches in Abbotsford. It was an awesome service. Packed out pretty much with, I think, 1,100-person capacity. There's about 900 people there on the long weekend in August for the 9 a.m. service. They have two services in the summer. And I'm looking around, and I'm like, this feels like I'm at a Christian conference. Like, it was just massive. And yet, I was like, this is like normal church for these people. Uh, And it was kind of a very different, neat experience, but uh, really nice to be back here where we're kind of like in that 80 to 100-person thing, and you kind of know a lot of people. And, yeah, it's a real gift to be in a small church. Okay, we're gonna be looking at Ephesians chapter 3 verses 1 to 13 this morning, but we haven't been in Ephesians Ephesians for a few weeks. Tracy and then AJ did a great job teaching on different passages with different themes. But uh, Basil, three weeks ago, uh, picked up on Ephesians, the, the back half of Ephesians chapter 2. But if you're new to the series, or you're kind of unfamiliar, or you're just, there's cobwebs in your mind, and you're like, what was going on again? Instead of diving right into verse, or chapter 3 verses 1 to 13, which is a little strange to dive into. Uh, let's kind of do a really quick review of the context of the book and then the, uh, what's, what's been said up to this point. So the context is Paul the Apostle writing from Rome to Ephesus. It's about 2,000 kilometers away. He's writing at about 62 AD, so about 30 years after Jesus ascends. Paul is in his late 50s at this point. He's been on three missionary journeys. He's been a Christian for about 25 years. He's writing this letter to those in Ephesus where eight years before this time, he had spent three years there starting and strengthening churches and sending out missionaries to all of the province of Asia. And so he's writing from Rome. He's under house arrest. So he's not in like a prison, like chained to a wall and being malnourished. House arrest means he would have been um, shackled to a Roman guard and under kind of house surveillance, we would call it today. But he didn't have kind of open freedom to go where he wanted to go, to say what he wanted to say. He was being monitored all the time by the government. And the letter that he writes in Ephesians is a really compact explanation of the gospel and how to live out its implications in the world for God's glory and the world's good. So in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 1, he's telling the Ephesians who they are, where they are, what they have. You are saints. You have been placed in the world, but you are also in Christ Jesus. You have a mission here. And you have every spiritual blessing in christ to fulfill that mission verses 3 to 14 of uh, chapter 1 paul goes on this doxology this word of glory and he kind of unfolds the nature of some of these spiritual blessings in christ he says you're god's possession you're sealed by the holy spirit you don't have to live any longer with a sense of spiritual anxiety or instability Verses 15 to 23, he prays for them. He says, I want you to have the spirit of wisdom and revelation that you may know God better, that you may know the hope and the riches and the power that are available to you as the church. And then in the first part of the second chapter, he says, you've been recreated for the world. This isn't just about believing something so that you can go into heaven after you die. This is about, um, the gospel is about God saving people from a life that's going nowhere into something meaningful into a living hope that yes carries on forever but it starts now and you have been rescued in christ to live a new life and that new life isn't because of good works it's not like you did all the right things and you started going to church and started saying your prayers and eating your vitamins and then god said okay now i will save you now you're allowed into my family now i'm going to use you for my purposes it doesn't result from works it's a gift We were all sinners. We were all unworthy to be included in what God was doing and to receive his love. But God extended it to us. And now that we're in Christ, now that we have a new identity, we are called to do good works. We are called to live out our faith, often in ways that are small, sometimes in ways that are big, but in every dimension of our life, learning to bring glory to God and to love and serve other people as an ambassador of God's kingdom. Those works don't save us, They come from hearts that are saved and are learning to live into their true identity in Christ. And then as Basil talked about, verses 11 to 22, and there's a bit of a cultural disconnect here because there isn't nearly as much, well, almost at all, sort of um, understanding of a two-tiered system religiously within the cultural landscape. In the first century, there was very much, there were Jews understood themselves to be on the top of the religious pyramid and everyone else was a far distant second, third, and fourth place. They were the special people of God. So when Gentiles became even converted to Jews, Gentiles meaning non-Jewish people, that was like, yeah, that's great. That's right. You should worship the true and living God. But you're not like fully God's person. You're not like ethnic Israel. So you're like... Yeah, you, you're, you're a Jew now, but it, there's an asterisk there. And Paul says, Christ has divided, has, uh, has destroyed the dividing wall. Anything that sets itself up as a division between people based on religious merit or religiosity or religious performance. And he says, God's secret all along has been trying to make one new humanity that wasn't defined by their religious performance or their ethnicity, Or their um, intellectual ability or their knowledge of scripture or whatever it is it was about faith in christ and now in christ both jews and gentiles are being made into one body the body of christ and they all have a part to play and one isn't really important and then others are not so important We are now the hands and feet of Jesus, Jew and Gentile together, which was a really, really radical message that Paul builds on in Ephesians 3. So here we are in Ephesians 3. You can follow along in your Bible. I'm gonna read it. It'll be on the screen if you don't have a Bible in front of you. So Paul continues. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly, in reading this then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of christ which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the spirit of god to his holy apostles and prophets this mystery is that through the gospel the gentiles are heirs together with israel members together of one body and shares together in the promises of christ jesus i became a servant of this gospel by the gift of god's grace given me through the working of his power Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles, the boundless riches of Christ, and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, for which ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. According to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in him, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. And I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my suffering for you, which are your glory. So if you were studying or reading through the book of Ephesians on your own, you would likely be tempted to quickly, at first pass, conclude that this passage might not really hold a lot of personal or contemporary relevance to modern life. You might kind of be in a hurry to get on to the next passage and look for something that is more uh, personally meaningful. There doesn't at first glance seem to be a hook that you can kind of say, oh this is interesting, I want to kind of lock in here and ruminate on this. It seems like a scattered bunch of thoughts, a lot of big language, I don't know what to do with this, okay let's move on. And that was kind of my first reaction when I read through this, probably several times, usually by a second or third reading of the text, the sermon's already starting to form, at least in skeletal structure. Things are kind of jumping off the page at me, and I'm like, oh, that, that, it's interesting, this turn of phrase, that theme, and then I'm starting to do my research. But this was a bit more work. But as is the case with the Word of God, if we push past the temptation of a quick analysis and then dismissal of something that doesn't seem practical, if we stay in the text, if we chew on it and meditate on it, maybe consult a study Bible, um, look for some resources, do a quality Google search for some commentaries on it, then it begins to um, come to bear in our lives in ways that are surprising and amazing. And the Holy Spirit takes His Word and begins to show us riches in the text that we would have been lost to us had we just skimmed over it quickly. And that's certainly what happened to me this week. So let's look at verse 1. I'm actually going to spend a good chunk of time in verse 1 because there's a lot there. And then we'll move through the rest of the passage fairly quickly because it builds off of verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. So he's starting a thought. And then you'll see in verse 2, the translation tries to convey that he kind of interrupts himself and then says, hey, wait a second. And he has an interruption of thought. But he's starting, starting here by saying, okay, for this reason... I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of the Gentiles. And just pause there. It's really important to understand and to remember why was Paul in jail in the first place? He's under house arrest. Why is that? Paul has two broad categories of enemies. The Romans, who are upset that he's going around preaching Jesus is Lord because Caesar is Lord. And Caesar demands ultimate allegiance in the first century context. But he's also under fire from religious Jews more so than from Rome because religious Jews are scandalized by his message that in Jesus, Gentiles can be brought into full access to God and to all of God's promises and blessings. That Paul is announcing in Jesus, this spiritual hierarchy, however it existed before, I'm this kind of Jew from this line and I can draw my lineage back this way and I've been a God-fearing person and I've kept the commands my whole life and I'm faithfully going to the temple several times a year and I do my sack. I am fastidiously religious in my observance. I am a God-fearing, God-honoring Jew. But that person in Christ is on the same playing field in terms of forgiveness and the purposes of God as someone who... Has given their life to Jesus who was before a tax collector or a prostitute or any other kind of sinner which in the first century would have marked you for the rest of your life very much as a second-class citizen in Acts 22 Paul is explaining what his mission is to Jewish religious leaders and he's basically saying I had a vision of Jesus Jesus came to me He said these things and he gets to verse 21 and he says then Jesus said to me go I will send you far away to the Gentiles So he's kind of giving his testimony, and then he says, I was made an apostle to share this gospel with non-Jewish people. And the next verse says, the crowd listened to Paul until he said that. And then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. It's very difficult for us to inhabit the heart space of a first century Jew who felt under attack and felt like, my identity as a Jewish person is so strongly defined that when someone comes who used to consider himself a Jew, he seems now to be a traitor, because he's not even referring to himself as a Jewish Christian, he's referring to himself simply as a follower of Jesus. And he says that people outside of this very defined religious circle get to have equal access to God, that your reaction would be one of violence. begin plotting, how do we bring an end, not just to this guy's ministry, but to his life. So this gives you a clue of how deep this division ran between Jew and Gentile. I mean, it was black and white. There were God's people, and then there were people who were not God's people. The only reason, writes one commentator, that Paul was in prison was because he thought that Gentiles had the same access to God that Jews did. In Jesus and he wasn't content to call himself a Jewish Christian or to preach as if Gentiles could still be a part of what God was doing but like in a very diminished capacity kind of over in this wing they couldn't come to the front row there were privileges that were extended only to those who were appropriately observant in their Jewish rituals everyone else had to sit at the back of the class Paul was saying that all it took to be saved was to place your faith in Christ, to believe the gospel and to commit to living for Him. And that meant that a tax collector or a sinful Gentile could come to faith in Christ, be brought into the family of God, and have full access to God's love and power and His purposes for their future. And that was very threatening to first century religious leaders who had created a system that said, You only have access to God based on these religious hoops that you have to um, jump through, and we're the arbiters of whether or not you're jumping properly. It's a very, very radical message that Paul brings, and it gets him in a lot of trouble, it causes riots. So Paul eventually, because of pressure, because the Jewish people, uh, Jewish leaders pressuring Rome to say, oh, he's subversive, he's causing all these trouble. Everywhere he goes, there's riots, and they're trying to make it sound like it's Paul's problem, but it's really their problem. Rome's like, oh, what do we do with this guy? And he kind of gets into the court system and it languishes for a while. Eventually, he lands in house arrest and he's writing this letter from Rome. Now, one of the things that marks the letter to Ephesians, if you read through it, it doesn't take you very long to read through it, maybe 25 or 30 minutes, is that it's very energetic, it's very exuberant. Paul writes with a, um, with a certain uh, pace that shows he's writing out of this conquering excitement, this conquering joy, but he's doing so in very less than ideal circumstances. And he sees what's happening to himself. He's not in denial. I'm under house arrest. I'm in a court system. I don't know what's gonna happen to my life one month from now or one year from now, but he's not letting his circumstances define him. In fact, he sees his circumstances as a, just a different way of understanding how God is working in his life. He's like, I'm chained to this Roman soldier. I'm a slave to Rome. Yeah, it's kind of like how I'm a slave to Jesus. Jesus has enslaved me with his love, but his enslavement doesn't hold me back like these chains do. They liberate me into new life. And I live as a slave for Jesus. And so I'm very much aware that I'm under house arrest. I'm very limited. I'm in very less than ideal circumstances. But those aren't determinative for me. There's a greater power at work in my life and God can and will still use me. He's not fatalistic in the face of his very real limitations. And that should be challenging to all of us because that takes a lot of faith when you're in a very less than ideal circumstance, when you feel stuck in your life, where you're moving into a Tuesday afternoon and you're like, my life is not what I thought it would be. I have a picture and if my life was like that, I would have joy. If my life was like this, if it looked like this, if if all the stars were aligned and the circumstances were um, manifesting themselves like this, yes, of course I would have joy. Then I'd be happy. Then God could use me. Then it would be. Then I'd be excited to get her to bed in the morning. But it takes a lot of faith to operate out of that same posture when you're in a place where life isn't what you thought it would be, and you're limited physically, maybe you're limited economically, limited socially, psychologically relationally and in those moments where life is less than ideal and we feel like we're a prisoner or that we're chained held down held back from what we'd like to do do we see that as as kind of a capital O obstacle to living out our faith and our life and so we just kind of slink into resentment and fatalism or do we see it as a new opportunity through which to glorify God and a new opportunity to serve people because if you empower your circumstances, your less than ideal circumstances, to be determinative for your life, I'm not sure how that ends in anything other than fatalism and just resentment. But Paul is writing with neither. He's boldly confident in what God is doing in him, through him, and in and through the church, despite persecution. And he's not fatalistic. He's not like, well, we're all just in a holding pattern until these chains come off, and then I'll really be able to get on with the work. Right? At some point, he's talking to the Roman guard, and he's like, do you mind if I like, use this hand to write a letter? I'm just going like, to strengthen some churches 2,000 kilometers away. Do you mind if I throw some ideas off you? Like, do you think the sentence sounds good? Too long? Yeah, okay, good. He's just going about it. It's not a big deal to him. He doesn't give very much focus to his obstacles. He's giving a lot more focus on what God is doing in and through them. And that means as a Christian, it is possible to have confidence in hardship, not a Pollyannish, um, I'm gonna psych myself up into believing things aren't hard or aren't difficult, or I'm not in a less than ideal circumstance, but a confidence that says, my limitations are real, but God is bigger. And I'm gonna continue despite these limitations to love and serve God, love and serve my neighbor, and trust God with the results what do you do when discouragement comes when you're in a situation where you feel chained held back held down and you cry out to God and say God I don't want to be in this prison I want to serve you I want to get out there I want to be doing these things and then the answer is at least not right now and the chains remain and you stay stuck what do you do in those situations One commentator said it's both necessary and good to lament, to cry out to God and to be honest with God and say, I don't like this. I don't want to be enchained. I don't want to be stuck. I want to be moving forward, God. But the Christian response is always through lament and through protest, being honest with God, casting our cares on God, also to be turning to him and to acknowledge that he might have a purpose in keeping you in this place that you can't see but one day you may and to trust that even in your stuckness, what feels like stuckness to you is actually a context where God is doing something in you and through you that is powerful. So our society will teach you in all kinds of different ways that you can live your best life now when all the circumstances uh, come together and that picture that you have in your mind of if all the pieces would just adhere like this, that would be the perfect picture, that would be my best life. And the Bible has a very different vision and a very different understanding of what your best life now looks like. It looks like courageously, joyfully, honestly, but faithfully living into loving God and serving your neighbor, even in the midst of really difficult circumstances, acknowledging those circumstances, but not waiting for them for everything to just uh, begin to fall into place before you actually start loving and serving God, but by saying, I'm stuck. I'm chained here. Not where I'd want to be, but God's going to teach me something through it, and God's still going to use me, so I'm going to take another step. I can't take 10 steps. I can only take one right now, but I'm going to take that one. Resentment and discouragement is not going to take hold of my life. Verse 2, Paul writes, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. The word that he uses for administration is oikonomio, which means... A stewardship of some kind he says I've been given something that isn't just for me I've been given a message to steward and to carefully pass on to other people and he's gonna get at this in a few more verses but he's saying I coming to faith in Jesus isn't something that you just get and you're like oh this is for me this is awesome it, it now carries a burden I want to bring this truth into the lives of other people and for Paul that was about bringing this message as a p- point of priority to non-Jewish people who may be presumed, because this is the message they would have got from the Jewish community, is that they are very much, they are either so estranged from God, only an act of tremendous mercy would ever give them a chance to come back, or were they to convert, they will live their entire lives as second-class citizens. Verse three, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written bri- briefly, Paul calls this mystery, which he's gonna explain in the next verse. He says, this mystery was given to me by revelation. I'm not bringing a message, he's saying, of stuff where I read a lot of books and I kind of put some ideas together and said, yeah, here are my thoughts on life. I'm not just bringing good advice or human wisdom. He says, I'm bringing you a revelation that I received from Jesus. The shorthand of that is what we call the gospel, this proclamation that in Christ, Christ has come incarnated died on the cross resurrected the gospel is incredibly deep we'll talk about that in a moment but in a nutshell the revelation of this mystery has been given to Paul and now everybody can have equal access to God but Paul calls it a revelation that's why when we talk about the Bible we don't talk about it containing the Word of God or parts of it being inspired we talk about the entire thing being the Word of God. Now again, we, we absolutely recognize, I mean, I've been using language like Paul writing this letter to the Ephesians. Um, and often when I talk about other books, I'll say, you know, Peter wrote this letter. And that's because Peter himself notes in 2 Peter 1.21, he says, listen, prophecy, um, the handing down of the Word of God, the communication of God's revelation, um, Never had its origin in human will. It didn't come from people who were enlightened, but th- it came through prophets who, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And there's a bit of a, um, there's a, a, bit of a mirroring between, you know, we talk about Jesus being fully God and fully man, right? He's not 50 50 fully god and fully man you could observe jesus and in one sense you could look at his life and say he's totally like a real human being like he's not like an angel who looks like a human just living and mimicking humanity he's a real human you could also look at jesus and hear him and say but he's he's not just a human he's fully god so there's this paradox there and that's In a similar way, the Bible talks about itself that way. It acknowledges some letters are written by Solomon. We have different authors, different time periods. But these letters taken together as God's library are the revelation of God's will that ultimately get revealed in the capital W word of God, Jesus, the incarnation of the word made flesh. That's why the Bible, when Paul is writing the Timothy, he says all scripture is God breathed. It's useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You can look at the Bible and say, well, it looks kind of like a human document. You can see people referencing stories or using I to refer to themselves sometimes. Yeah, the Bible doesn't say, or the Bible doesn't speak of itself as if it fell from heaven. It is the collected revelation of God. There's a whole process behind that. We won't get into that today, but we come to the place where we say, though God used human authors, this revelation is exactly that. It's revelation. It's revelatory. It's being shown to us by God. And Paul says, that revelation was given to me to pass along to the Gentiles. And he says, in reading this then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the spirit of God's holy apostles and prophets. And then he explains what the mystery is. He says this mystery is that through the gospel this is the this is the whole big thing that god has been leading up to now again if you've been in the church for a long time just pause there and imagine how you would fill the end of that sentence the mystery is this this is the big idea this is the big priority if i would have been like 16 or 17 i would have said that jesus came so that we could go to heaven when we die absolutely an implication application of the gospel. But Paul says, the mystery is that in the gospel, Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. They're members of one body, and they share together in the promises of Christ. Now, we read that, and we're like, okay, it doesn't have the same impact on us, because the context is so different for us today. We, even culturally, even if you're not Christian, we have a very inclusive vision for society. That was not the vision of society that was, existed in the first century. And there was really nothing to propel a vision like that forward until Paul brings this revelation. He says, first, Gentiles have equal access to the inheritance that was for Israel. This is not a perfect analogy, but imagine if in the Nelson newspaper you read about a family of a tremendously wealthy person who had Um, given an inheritance to their children. But then you get a phone call from a lawyer saying, hey, before this person died, they included you as part of their inheritance. And you get access, uh, equal distribution, along with their uh, birth children. And come down and we'll sign the papers and you're going to get, you know, 20% of this person's inheritance. And that works out to being like $7.8 million. And, you know, we'll help you with all the other uh, steps after that and you hang up the phone and you're like, what? Like, I didn't deserve, I'm not even related to this person. How do they know this? You can't make any connection why you would deserve this. I have never, I never stopped by and had coffee with this person or even I, I, I know their name maybe, but I've never, I don't have a relationship with them. I don't deserve this. So you would be overwhelmed that you would have equal access to that inheritance, but flip it. Imagine if you're one of the kids and all of a sudden, this inheritance that you were so looking forward to, and maybe you'd put up with a lot of idiosyncrasies from mom and dad because you knew the pay was coming eventually. So you'll, you'll go over for Thanksgiving, and you'll, you'll make concessions at Christmas. And then it finally happens, you're like, yes, the inheritance, and I'm expecting $20 million. And all of a sudden, I find out that someone else has access to that inheritance. You could see the resentment would come from. Now it's not a perfect illustration because it's not like for God to bless one person, he's taking the blessing away from other people. But emotionally, that's how first century Jews and religious leaders would have heard this message. Uh, No, the inheritance is for Israel. And they understood that to mean ethnic Israel. So if you could trace your lineage back to Abraham, yeah, for sure. You have the inheritance. And the inheritance in the scripture is about having the world. Ultimately, when God restores everything, you get to rule and reign forever. Yeah, that's for us. And probably in that new world, we'll rule over second class citizens like Gentiles who have come into the faith. But it was very, very shocking to use language like they had equal access to the inheritance. And then they're fellow members of one body. It's not like the Jews are the body of Christ and then the Gentiles are kind of like sidekicks like the Robin to Israel's Batman. It's like, no, you're all part of the superpower known as the church of this, this body. And you're all important. The eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you, or you're less important, or you don't really matter. All parts of the body have a place of honor. And then third, the Gentiles are to have equal share in the promises of God. All the promises given to Abraham, you and your family will be blessed. I will bless you and through you, I will make you a blessing to the nations. The Gentiles get to participate in that? That special mission of God? That Jews said, well, this is part of what makes us special. This is part of my identity. It's I, get to be, I get to have access to certain privileges because I'm a Jew that Gentiles don't. This is very, very shocking. You can imagine, if you stretch your imagination, being a first century Jew and thinking, wait a second, these Gentiles, these tax collectors and sinners, yes, they've come to Jesus, they've gotten forgiveness, like, okay, I get that, but Like, let's get real here. You're telling me they have equal access to the inheritance. I'm supposed to welcome them into the worshiping community as if they haven't been living the last few decades of their life in a way that is anti-God. They haven't really proven themselves yet. Like, maybe let's figure out a ranking system so that they can earn their way back into moral and religious respectability. You can't just give it to them. You can't just open the floodgates and say anybody can come together and worship. And anybody can be a deacon in the church. Anybody can be an apostle. And anybody can lead into the mission of Jesus. These guys are fundamentally unclean. And I guess Jesus has done something to deal with their uncleanness. But like, come on. Like religious observance has to count for something. And Paul's message is very... It just destabilizes that whole paradigm and says, actually, religious observance kind of counts for nothing. And it can actually harden your heart against God. The only thing that matters is faith working itself out in love. And in Christ, there's no longer slave or free, Jew or Gentile, male or female. He talks about that in Galatians. And for us, we're kind of like, yeah, that's good. We want to be inclusive as a church, but we don't understand how radical that was. To hear that for the first time, to be challenged as a community to live into it i'm not sure we can appreciate how revolutionary it was that the bible claims that in jesus anyone can be born again anyone can have all of their sins forgiven full pardon anybody can be cleansed from all unrighteousness anyone can be granted new life Anyone can be redeemed into a future that is not defined by their past, but is instead defined by Christ and his plan and purposes for them. Anybody can have a life that is now defined by Jesus' love and redeeming grace. What lands Paul in prison is that he's preaching a message that says the gospel establishes a radical spiritual egalitarianism that in Christ... If you are in Jesus, you are part of the family of God, full stop. All the inheritance, all the privilege, all the responsibilities, yes, we'll get to that. But there's no second-class children in God's family. In Christ, all are one. Paul says, I became a servant of this gospel. In verse seven, by the gift of God's grace given to me by the working of his power. Paul says, I became a servant of the gospel. It doesn't serve me, I serve it. My life is now about serving God's agenda, not figuring out how can God serve my agenda? This is what I'd like to have happen, God. Can you make that happen? Great, if you do, I will absolutely bless your name and that'd be awesome. So get on with blessing me. Paul says, I don't see life like that at all. I see it as saying, I serve God. Along the way, he's gonna bring all kinds of blessings into my life for sure. But it's about decentering myself and saying, I'm not the hero of my story. Basil talked about that. We're not the hero of our story. Jesus I'm now serving his agenda, not my own. And I'm learning what that means every day. Notice that the gospel enlists. He says, I became a servant of the gospel. When the mystery came, when the revelation came, I didn't just hear it and think, yeah, that's kind of neat. That's a neat little piece of like Bible trivia. I'll tuck it away. He says, this has propelled me into action. I can't just sit on my hands anymore. I can't just passively go through life. What God has shown me, what God has graced me with, this ministry, it animates my life. I got to get out there. I got to do something. Client Snodgrass, who's a Reformed, or not Reformed, Covenant theologian, he wrote the entire commentary for the New International Version, uh, Life Application Commentary on the book of Ephesians, and he says, the gift of God's grace actually obligates us. Through grace, Paul becomes a servant of the gospel. Grace doesn't just connect us to God and Christ and to each other, but it also enlists us. It also empowers us. Grace, he says, always brings responsibility. It's never merely privilege. We don't just say, wow, look what God has loved me and that's awesome, and then it ends there. It's, again, the call of Abraham. I am choosing you. I am going to bless you so that you are a blessing to other people. You are enlisted in a larger purpose now. And so if you are a Christian, who has heard the good news, maybe believed it, but hasn't really taken root and you haven't responded to it in your life, it's because it hasn't really actually taken root. And you don't understand the gospel because when God's grace comes into your life, your reaction is not, oh sweet, thanks God, and I'll just live life like I normally did before. You begin to live life differently. There's new burdens that God puts on your heart. New ministries that Paul calls a gift of grace. I've been given the gift of grace in my life to teach. I love teaching people about the Bible. I love teaching people about what it means to grow as a Christian, become a Christian. I would do this even if I didn't get paid for it. I'd be limited in my capacity if that was the situation, but I would still do it. Because when God's grace found me, through all kinds of circumstances, what God put on my heart is, I want you to teach people how to understand how to faithfully understand and faithfully respond to my word and the gospel. I want you to be a pastor. And I can't just be like, yeah, God's put that on my heart, but whatever, I'll just do do whatever. God's grace has enlisted me. And that means that God's grace has come into your life for a purpose. What has God's grace in your life enlisted you for? Paul says, "I've I've become a prisoner of Christ Jesus for you, Ephesians. Who have you been enlisted to serve? Verse 8, although I am the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. And the boundless is a really difficult word to pronounce, so I'm going to say it very, very slowly. Anex. I already screwed it up. Anexeniastos. Anexenikniastos, I think, is the correct pronunciation. And the word boundless there means impossible to understand, unfathomable. Some some translations will say unsearchable. Paul says, this gift given to me was to tell the Gentiles about how inexhaustible the riches of Christ are. There are limitless glories. Um, You can grow as a Christian every day of your life as aggressively as you would want to and you'll never get to the bottom of it. You'd never hit the bottom of the ice cream container. You'd never get to a place where you're like, oh, I totally get it. I understand, I, I've kind of gone to the biggest concentric circle of how the gospel impacts life and the glories that, of what it means to know and serve Jesus. And I'm kind of like done. And now I just kind of move into cruise control. It's inexhaustible. It's amazing. And N.T. Wright sounds this might sound strange to Christians and non Christians who have forgotten or maybe have never known that what can appear on the outside to be very tedious and humdrum religious experiences going to church, so much praying, reading your Bible, going to small group, trying to be holy, that they're seeing it the wrong way. In fact, these are things that are supposed to be a delighted exploration of untold and inexhaustible riches. Being a Christian is meant to consist of going from room to room in the king's palace and relishing the beauty and the splendor of it all. And just when you think you've seen it all, the king says, oh, I got one more thing to show you over here want one more thing to show you about your marriage, one more thing to show you about your future, one more thing to show you about reconciliation, forgiveness, one more thing to show you about freedom. And you're like, oh, it's amazing, challenging, but amazing. I said a few months ago, it's impossible to be bored as a growing Christian because you can't exhaust the gospel. And then he says, so I've been given this gift. I'm supposed to tell the Gentiles about the boundless, inexhaustible riches of Christ. And he says, I'm also to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery. And this is one of those, remember I talked about how the Bible you know, very clearly shows itself to be an inspired document, but through, human. there's a human voice here. This is totally like one of those hilarious things. Does anyone pick up on it? Paul says, this is the grace that was given to me, to preach to the Gentiles and to make plain to everybody I talk to or write to about this mystery. Then, in Second Peter, Peter, writing about Paul's letters, says, Paul writes the same way in all his letters. Uh, He speaks, sorry, he writes the same way in all of his letters, speaking in them of these matters. And then Peter says, Paul's letters contain some things that are kind of hard to understand. (laughs) So Paul's like, this is my calling to make eminently clear, to make simple, to make plain. And Peter's like, well, I still got a little bit of work to do, Paul, because some of those letters are a little fancy and they're complicated, right? So these were written through Peter and Paul and their personalities and different authors. But it is still the revealed word of God. Verse 10, Paul says, God's intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. The New Testament doesn't really talk, use that language, rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms as it and connect that to the mission of the church. So people... Different commentators will read and interpret that differently. What does that mean? I think the safest interpretation and the one that lines up to Paul's thought and then the overall trajectory of the New Testament is that the church has now been given a mission to live out the gospel in such a way that the powers and principalities, whether they're human, on earth, or in heaven, are confronted by the fact that the church isn't living and under their authority. The church is under the authority and love and grace of Jesus. And with human institutions, that, that would cause repentance or conversion. But to all people, there would be a sense of marvel that the church as a body would live in such a way that all the other institutions bent toward selfishness and evil would look at uh, the truly redeemed body of Christ and say, that is very, that's a very different way to live they're showing us a different way to be human and a different way to be the human community and it's challenging for us the church is to be a counter cultural force to anti-christ powers at work in the world and then paul says in verse 12 in him referring to jesus and through faith in jesus we may approach god with freedom and confidence and that's a message that everybody especially those who consider themselves really religious need to hear Because religious people cannot approach God with freedom and confidence. Religious people approach God God with kind of fear and anxiety and trepidation because they understand their access to God to be contingent on their religious performance. So if I'm performing well, I have a lot of confidence because my confidence is in myself. If I've been blowing it lately, my confidence is low. And I don't know what I'm going to get from God if I go to him in prayer or ask for something because he might be really ticked that I've been blowing it morally or spiritually. Paul says, if you're a Christian, you don't live with this kind of on again, off again, am I in or am I out? Does God love me or not? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You've been adopted as sons and daughters, but adopted into sonship, meaning full inheritance and privilege. Why, because you're so good? No, simply by putting your faith in Christ, Cast all your cares on him. There's now no more dividing wall. You can in confidence go to God because you are in Christ. And so whether we are blowing it in our personal life, we can be confident that God's disposition is come to me, confess, let's work through this, and let's move forward. We never need to fear that God's going to unadopt us, kick us out of the family. Say, ooh, you've crossed a line that's too far. My forgiveness and grace, it definitely extended up to here, but you went here and you're out of bounds. Sorry. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So you can access God with freedom and confidence. So the question is, do you access God with freedom and confidence? Is that the posture of how you move into your quiet times with God or as you're walking or commuting to work? Because if you're in Christ, you can. You don't need to have any spiritual hesitancy. You're an adopted child that has full access to God's grace and love and power. And so take advantage of that and live from a place of spiritual freedom and confidence. And then Paul says, I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. He says, these are my circumstances. They're real. But you know what? These are for your glory. These are for you good. Don't be discouraged. I'm not discouraged. So don't be discouraged either. Again, just coming full circle to this amazing Uh, vision for his life that says, my circumstances aren't what I want, but eh, whatever, God's going to use it. It's going to be awesome. And I'm anticipating how God's going to use it. So I told you, told you there was a lot there. If you sit with it, if you dig some stuff up, right? A passage that might seem eh, not very personally applicable, all of a sudden maybe find some hooks into our hearts, into our lives into the complications that we face, into the challenges that we face, our everyday lives, that this passage is actually pretty gloriously dense with meaning and purpose. So here are four questions to ask that I think would be good f- for us to ponder and then respond to in the week ahead. And I don't mean necessarily all four, but I'll say four that I think emerged out of the text. And then starting today, maybe to take one, maybe two, that you feel like God really kind of says, yeah, this is the one I want you to focus on, and just be asking, journaling about it, praying about it, just pondering and saying, how do I respond to this? The first question is this, are you stuck or chained in less than ideal circumstances? And if you are, what does it look like for you to seek to serve Christ in those circumstances, instead of waiting for them to change, which they might, God might lead you out of those, but if, until he does, how can you take the first step this week or another step of serving Him, being chained where you are? Number two, for who are you in chains? Paul says, I'm a prisoner for you, Ephesians. If we are in a place where we're stuck or life isn't working out the way we thought it would or should, it's because God wants to use us for the benefit of someone else. So who is that? Could be a child, could be a family member, could be a coworker. What ministry have you been graced with that you need to respond to, even if it's a small one? Number three, are we learning to explore the riches of Christ? Or, as N.T. Wright says, are we content to stay in the outer hallways of this great palace, having imagined that the inner rooms are just kind of too boring to claim our attention? Now, I understand that's a high and lofty ideal of exploring the riches of Christ. How do I do that? I just used a very simple metric based off of Jesus' great commandment Love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If you want to learn to live into the riches of Christ, use that as a framework to say, Heart, how can I learn to cultivate deep spiritual friendships with other Christians? Soul, how can I learn to pray and worship in ways that are more authentic and deeper and more vulnerable before God and with other people? Mind, how can I learn to faithfully understand and faithfully apply the Bible? Not just read it and not just kind of lazily say, oh, I guess I'll probably do this today, but to really learn to handle it and then to apply it faithfully for God's glory and our neighbor's good. And strength, how can I learn to serve or give for the sake of other people? What step can I take? And what I do every month is I just sit down with God and I just... look through those dimensions relationships prayer scripture knowledge and serving and giving my time energy and money and i say, god what is one theme or one practice or one emphasis you want me to lean into this month and i just try and be attentive to what god might put on my heart and whether or not i have any kind of grand sense of leading i'll pick something i'm going to read through this book of the bible i'm going to pray for these four people specifically this month I'm gonna decrease, I'm gonna have fewer, um, yeah, I'm gonna make some lifestyle adjustments and spend less money over here so that I can give more money over here. And that's gonna be my thing for the month. If we all do that, that's one of the ways that we're constantly developing and growing in Christ and discovering that you can't exhaust this thing. The riches of Christ are boundless, but we have to kind of sort of go on that treasure hunt. We can't be passive in our faith. And lastly, is our church in the life that it leads posing the kind of challenge to the powers of evil in the world in which provoke a reaction? Is our church clearly imperfect, but are we living in such a way that antichrist expressions of power in the world are challenged by how we live? I think as we learn to live as prisoners of the Lord, those who are chained to Jesus, and ironically, through that, through being captured by Jesus' love, come into a new kind of freedom and fullness in Christ, I believe we can be that kind of witness, individually, in our marriages and families and friendships and relationships and workplaces. And as we do, I absolutely believe that as we move into the world in Christ, that the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Let's pray god thank you for this morning for your word for every person that is here and i pray holy spirit that you would just leave an impression on every heart here of an element of this word that they need to respond to and that we would be faithful in that response That we wouldn't just move through our sunday and then let the week kind of take over and just move into regular routine but that we would take time to pray and reflect and open our hearts to you and say god what do you want me to do with this holy spirit be working in our hearts Help us to respond to your truth faithfully. For your name's sake, amen.